welcome to Emotional Intelligence at Work, brought to you by Genos International. Environments with high levels of pressure and emotional labour would do well to learn from Pierre de Velliers. He just completed three years with Allianz, where he introduced an emotional intelligence program to support leaders ahead of a rollout to frontline staff. He's now the director of the Talent Exchange, and he joins me, Marie Daggle, and Genos International CEO and EI expert, Dr. Ben Palmer. Welcome, Pierre. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Yes, Pierre, it's great to have you. Thank you for coming on the show. I think this is a very timely episode. Um, on, uh, you know, the use of emotional intelligence in the insurance industry. The insurance industry, you know, is really getting impacted by climate change and inflationary pressures, and it's in the news all the time at the moment. Coupled with that, of course, is the public that you're dealing with and the issues they're facing. Cost of living pressures are resulting in a rise in mental health injuries, Police talk to me about the fact that they're also leading to a rise in domestic violence and, of course, a general rise in anxiety to do with things like, is my house insured for the right amount of money? What will happen uh, if something goes wrong with it? And I can imagine that that situation is quite impactful for people at the end of phones taking people's calls on their insurance matters. So uh, a very timely um, podcast, and I'm really looking forward to deep diving into this with you, Pierre. So, Pierre, what you recently, um, well, your last job before setting up your own business, which we'll speak about shortly, was at Allianz Insurance. Talk to us a little bit about the workers on the front line who had to deal with customers who were you know, dealing with a crisis or a life-changing event and, and how they were trained to manage that? So if you if you look at um, large general insurers like Allianz that operates in Australia, and there's obviously others that operate in Australia and around the world, there's a number of different touch points and, and different kinds of customers. And so you're looking at things like where someone has home or, or car insurance, where they, they may have had a, a flood or a hailstorm um, or potentially a bushfire where they've lost you know, their, their, their place to, to live and where their family has, has maybe grown up or, or something really close to home. And then you've also got other insurances like um, workers' compensation and, um, um, you know, road accident insurance, CTP in, in New South Wales, where, you know, someone's had a, a car accident or they've been injured at work um, and they personally have been injured or, again, it might be a family member. Um, and then there's also things like life insurance where, you know, the only reason the person's really calling to make a claim is, is that, the, per- the policyholder is now passed on and, um, you know, someone's calling to actually un- understand, you know, what the process is and how they can claim against this policy. So in all of these situations, there's there's a range of, of um, circumstances um, and a range of emotions that you're dealing with. But ultimately, when somebody picks up the phone to claim on insurance, um, whether it's a broken bag at the airport like I had myself this last week or something far more serious, um, someone's in a heightened state of emotional stress. And so it's really, really tricky to to make sure that the, the, the customer's treated in a way which is respectful, uh, that they feel safe, but also that they heard and understood. And so you take a large business, any business, and the training that's required for people who are in these roles is critical. Uh, absolutely important that they understand 
not just the right thing to say, but how to say it and when to say it. And so all of these aspects are baked into the, the process that they follow. Are they um, at the recruitment stage, Pierre? Are, are people in those kinds of roles tested for things like, you know, empathy levels or emotional intelligence? Because I'd assume they're um, skills that one would benefit from having in a role like that. Yeah, so it, it does vary. And I'd say organisation to organisation, there may be better or, or worse set up. Certainly, mm. I think some smaller organisations probably haven't quite got their head around this yet. They'd probably be recruiting more for the fundamental skills like, are you good at having conversations? Are you able to listen mm. effectively? Um, and more of the mechanical aspects of the role, if I'm really honest about it. Some organisations, and, and when you know I've worked with them, um, we have certainly looked at, especially when it comes to team leader roles um, and other more senior roles, really considering some of those broader emotional intelligence aspects. And and that's why I've just been such a pleasure to work with people like Ben and the team at Genos to really bring some of those tools into the recruitment process to make sure that you're hiring people with the best possible chance of success in what can be a really high-pressured role. Well, we've found that... Uh speaks to this kind of finesse that uh, Pierre's talking about in these interactions with customers, letting the customer express their concerns and emotions. You know, a problem shared is a problem halved. Acknowledging customers' expressed emotions, and I underline the word expressed, I think claims managers who don't do this work well assume certain emotions from the tone of voice and the what, what they're kind of hearing or sensing. And I think that uh, that's when things can, can potentially go a little bit wrong. And I think staying calm and, and maintaining a caring yet professional and assertive tone of voice can actually work well. The, the things that I found be unintentionally happen that can work against the empathetic listening, if you like, between the claims manager and the person are things like reassuring platitudes. This will be okay. You know, someone's expressing something in quite a concerned fashion. Um, she'll be right, mate, is a, you know, a very Aussie term. Mm. But I think that that can actually unintentionally not acknowledge properly the level of concern that somebody has some, around something. I've already said be flippant it. almost. Be flippant, yeah. Reassuring platitudes um, can really unintentionally uh, send a message that you're not connecting properly with another person's very real sense of struggle and concern. Assuming emotions, I've already talked about, um, cutting people off and talking over the top of them is obviously something that really doesn't work well. But also some people I find who've had a little bit of empathy training can unintentionally cause a downward spiral as well, you know, dwelling with people on the way they're feeling. Mm. I can tell this is a really difficult situation, isn't it? I really feel for you. When you think about cost of living pressures and everything else that's going on at the moment, <laughs> dot, 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 you know, it really unintentionally amplifies sometimes what's going on for people and, of course, demonstrating yeah. sympathy. You poor thing, I feel really sorry for you. These are the sorts of things that can unintentionally slip into our conversations with people who are in heightened emotional states and um, can get in the way. And I think you, you used a very important word there, Ben, which is unintentional. So, you know, typically the person on the phone is 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 feeling something for that other person and they're, they're trying to 
help them through the process. But as you say, it's it's just an unintended or you know a, a sort of sometimes a, a naively used turn of phrase that can that can actually have a, a lot more impact uh, or cause an issue. And I think this is why, again, coming back to the earlier question around training, you know, giving people situational um, experiential training on these kinds of things is, is really important, uh, and preparing mm. them outside of the actual live environment. Um, to really think about, well, how might I deal with the situation? And then, and then a supportive feedback loop as they practice and practice and, and get better at it, um, I think is again really important because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, um, if you, if you, you know, I've had experience with the insurance industry for a number of years now, especially in Australia. And, you know, the people who typically work, uh, in, in the industry are actually have a lot of care. Uh, and really do you know think about their customer so um it's 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 hardly ever a situation where someone's gone oh, I was just so frustrated with this customer it was more a case of I was frustrated because I couldn't help them or I was frustrated because mm-hmm. I wasn't quite able to 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 you know support them because there are also commercial aspects of it and if someone's claim isn't allowed within a policy that it's a really difficult situation to be in mm. um, so there's all sorts of you know further complications that can come through mm. yeah how difficult to have to deal with um, highly emotional or stressed out customers where we're living in a environment where most of us are highly stressed out ourselves that would be quite quite a task for the person on the other side of that call it is uh, I think though Marie that they do find very useful practical, accessible, useful, daily useful EI, applied emotional intelligence techniques like being mindful not to use reassuring platitudes, mm. being mindful not to assume emotions, um, just knowing things like the downward spiral that can unintentionally be caused. Finally, one that I find, Pierre, they really engage a bit around is the empathy gap phenomenon, which for those people who are listening that might know not know about the empathy gap phenomenon kind of goes along the lines of this. When you've been in someone's shoes or you've helped others through similar situations, you become particularly reassured, if you like, or you become particularly um, confident about those techniques and the fact that they'll apply well to everyone. What you lose, if you like, is that client-centred approach uh, and start, you know, taking people through similar processes and that, that's what can result in an empathy uh, gap, if you like. And so, yeah, helping claims managers just think about the fact that you deal with claims every day, you can become expert in the how-to and that expertise can sometimes unintentionally help um, make someone feel like they're not really being listened to and, mm. and uh, addressed properly. Well, I think that's a great insight, Ben. And, you know, I would liken it to um, imagine a, maybe an old-fashioned door where you have a keyhole and, and you're looking at the situation through a keyhole. And and that's what you're referring to is where you're going, oh, I've seen this before, but you're only looking at a tiny, uh, small, very small aspect of what's going on. And it's quite similar, actually, when people start thinking about coaching. Um, often they'll slip into advising someone or giving them their own you know, this is what I did when I was in the situation, and 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 on an emotional basis, that's that's I think what you're talking about there is that idea of I've seen the situation before, 
uh, I've done something that worked before and therefore I can apply to the situation. But unfortunately, and that's both for the person calling and the customer and the person who's answering the phone call, there's so much else that's happening behind the scenes, below the surface. Um, and there's just so many other complications that you just can't know about. So to your mm-hmm. point, it's, it's around really listening very effectively, finding, you know, an emotional, um, you know, really – um, useful techniques to, to to play back and check for understanding uh, and to really keep the conversation on on as even a keel as possible, being conscious of the fact of the you know the, the heart and state of the individual calling in um you know and and the person on the phone who's who's working with their customer. Yeah, absolutely. Empathy gap phenomenon. It uh, not only applies to uh, what we're talking about, but to us as parents as well, we're known to underestimate the anxiety of our children, uh, partly because we've usually been through similar situations uh, that they're going through. Marie, I cut you off before. Take us to your next directive question. Oh, one has to remember at first, Ben. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask. <laughs> well, actually, I was going to um, ask you about the AI program you introduced at Allianz. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. What, what did you set out to achieve? So uh, when I was at Allianz um, more recently, uh, we had a, a challenge that was uh, laid to us off the back of the Royal Commission to to really think more holistically around the kind of leaders that we wanted uh, in the business. And what do we think was the, the kind of leader that would really be appropriate for an organization of that size, but just more generally uh, working in the industry. And so we did quite a bit of work to think about, well, what, what does it really take to make a, a great leader? And one of the pieces which was really quite obviously missing from what we had done in the past or the business had done in the past was thinking about this aspect of emotional intelligence. And, you know, the fact is, as a leader, you are working with people, even if you've got a smaller team, uh, this is something you're working with people day in and day out. And so the skills that you need to be successful um, thinking about, you know, the, the commercial side of the business, thinking about the technical aspects of your role, but also then being successful and performing through others. And so we started off working on a basis of looking at it from a point of view of recruitment, uh, as well as, you know, internal promotion and uh, development centers where we were saying to leaders, for you to perform at a higher level in a more complex role, uh, this is the expectation level that we have of, uh, and this is what makes people successful, you know, really understanding what that looked like. So for us, it was a really great opportunity to bring some different lenses to what it meant to be a great leader uh, and to go on this journey of helping uh, use this as a tool to 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 um, understand not just the requirements of the role in different parts of the business, but also making sure there's a great fit. Uh, and when you're bringing people to add something, uh, but you can also make sure that they can be successful in the role, like I say, whether promoted or from outside the business. Um, this then led to um, some development programs, really uplifting large cohorts of leaders. Um, and, and you know, I was really proud of the work that was done there and, and proud that it's continuing, I think, now through lower levels of the organization and also into areas of the business where there is um, heightened or additional value uh, to, to have people learn some of the skills and tools that are provided uh, by Genos uh, in their emotional intelligence suite. I'll never forget someone saying, is this woke sensitivity training? What? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> not necessarily from Allianz, but generally yeah. a leader in a program says to me the other day, is this woke sensitivity training? No. Uh, and 
of course, um, we went on to talk about how the way people feel influences the way people think and the way people behave and the way people perform. And we, we talked and brought that back to the fundamental role of leadership, which is really to unleash people's potential, to remove obstacles to their work, to create a psychologically safe workplace and to inspire high performance. And, and if uh, emotions are known to broaden and build or narrow and limit the way we think and the way we behave and therefore the way we perform, um, can we see the role for being more aware of emotions in oneself and others, being able to better influence them and so on and really brought it back to, yes, this is about helping leaders become more situational in their approach, being able to better connect, better communicate to and better influence different personalities at work, create an authentic dialogue and culture in the team and unleash potential on that basis. And, yeah, I'm also proud of the work that uh, we've been doing in the industry with people like Pierre and, and companies like Allianz. Pierre, did you see an impact post the um, development programs with your leaders? Did you see an impact on the on the wider business and what, what, what was it? We, we did see an impact and and – Something I'm sure anyone who's spent time thinking about measuring impact of, of learning uh, will, will tell you, uh, you know, the, the broader the broader the conversation, the harder it is to really narrow down uh, a direct correlation. But you know, at the highest level, um, you'd, you'd have to sort of look at the the fact that uh, the business had a, about a fifty percent increase in top line revenue um, and increased profitability over that period. Not suggesting this was the only factor, but certainly the quality of leaders and the the um, increased uh, performance levels of leaders coming in at those, especially at those more senior levels where they've got vast amounts of impact. Um, I, I would certainly liken to you know some of the broader processes, and one of which was the emotional intelligence piece. I think also when you think about some of the the further scores that were were illustrated in you know engagement surveys where you know you were you were able to also track and, and look at the impact of leaders and and people being listened to by leadership um certainly saw some uh increases there in in scores for individual leaders where they had the opportunity to really think differently about their leadership style uh, and and again making sure they've got the right tools you know working on a, on a motor car or whatever the, the appropriate uh, sort of thing is for you, you'd have to say that you want to make sure you've got the right tool for the job. And and I think a lot of the time, to Ben's point around driving performance or performing at a high level, um, you know, leaders need an ever-increasing number of tools and specific tools to do to do a great job. And it is about removing those obstacles to performance for themselves and for their teams. And I think not having the toolkit, the emotional intelligence toolkit at your disposal really is like, um, you know, not having the right tools for the job. And so we certainly saw um, a number of different uh, aspects of increased performance. Um, and again, you know, for me, I think a simple way of putting it is when you're getting phone calls from leaders saying, I've been on this, I've had this experience, I've found it useful, I want my team to go through it. Um, how do we do that? Uh, I've got, I'll find the budget, I'll find the time, um, but I think it's really important. That to me is probably the best yardstick of did it have an impact? So, so a resounding yes. What about on those? I mean, we were speaking earlier about you know the customer service reps who are dealing with uh, highly emotional customers calling in. If the leaders went through this training, would the people on the front line 
get some benefit from that training in terms of how they're supported and their psychological safety and their ability to manage customers better? The, the one of the groups that um, you know we were we were prioritizing on a frontline basis were some of these people. So so that is I think there's a, a definite benefit for individuals to also um, have exposure to the training and to the toolkits and, and frameworks. But from a leadership point of view, you know your ability to observe and see. Um, you know, your, your awareness of others and your ability to actually notice that someone's off their game for that day, uh, or maybe they've been more impacted than usual. Um, so, so skills like that, um, and even your own awareness of self as a reflection of, you know, well, I don't feel stressed, but that doesn't mean someone else does. Um, so all of these different skills and, and, and tools certainly have helped leaders, um, support their teams in those frontline areas. There's a number of other tools that are needed, but certainly um, being able to support the team in an appropriate way uh, and being more skilled at that is is a big impact and, and a positive outcome. Ben, what are some other industries um, where you see a lot of frontline staff dealing with stress and anxiety, and how how do they manage that? How do they how how do they skill up to manage it? Mm. Well, industries that are publicly facing generally. Um, there are at the moment high levels of emotional labour and emotional regulation involved. We've talked a lot about education, healthcare, aged care. Um, now we're talking about insurance. Um, <clears throat> yeah, organisations obviously that are and have uh, um, a big interaction with the public. There are both, in my opinion, the learning and development and the organisational development things that are happening um, to help people cope with that. The organisational development things are ensuring people's work doesn't overwhelm them, that they can complete their job uh, in a reasonable work day, that they have the tools and equipment that they need to do their job, that they have the right levels of autonomy to do their job, and um, that the organisation is proactive in helping to create respectful behaviour and respectful interactions with the public. You might have flown recently and heard one of the cabin crew managers of Qantas, for example, talk about the need for everyone on board to be respectful towards each other. That's a little OD piece that Qantas have put in that I think uh, does help remind people about we're here in a public space with with other people and we need to be respectful to each other. doesn't illuminate it. Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder how effective that announcement is. I see, um, I don't know if you guys have seen this when you go into a GP or a hospital and it says, you know, please be respectful to our staff. Um, We will not tolerate abusive behaviour or rudeness, those kinds of messages. Uh, do Do you think they work? My sense of it is yes, and I would encourage businesses to carry on with that and um, to tweak those messages. I think Pierre and you and I were having an off-camera, so to speak, uh, discussion around it. I think the messages need to be sensitive to the context in which the customer is interacting. So Pierre was sharing, like in the insurance industry, uh, you wouldn't want a message that was too bluntly, you know, hey, everyone, just remember to be respectful um, because, as Pierre, you were saying, Customers are calling in a heightened emotional state yeah. to just injure themselves or damage their vehicle or their house has just burnt down. And so there's got to be a different nuanced message there that you might use that might be effective. But generally, I think, ang- let's call them 
anchors for behaviour. I think they generally do not eliminate abusive behaviour, but even if they help one person be just that little bit more respectful, that one person's um, abusive behaviour not manifesting itself, I think they've done their job. You know, like just even a 10, 15% reduction uh, can mean a reduction in mental health injuries for your workforce. It can mean a reduction in lost time injuries because mental health injuries are lost time injuries. And these things cost uh, a lot of money. And so, um, sorry, that was a very long-winded way, Marie, was saying, yeah, I think these things are important. But coupled with that, of course, you've got to do the L&D piece, which is what Pierre's been talking a lot about here uh, at Alliance. You've got to help people really get how to apply emotional intelligence techniques in their interactions as well so that people are staying calm, establishing boundaries when needed with the customer, properly acknowledging a customer's expressed concerns and emotions rather than assuming them, allowing customers to express their concerns, acknowledging what they hear. Uh, little tools and techniques like that all help to create a positive narrative and a positive customer experience and therefore reduced stress and reduced emotional regulation needs on the employee, which leads to obviously better employee retention, lower turnover, greater employee engagement, so on. And as Pierre talks about that, that starts with how your manager interacts with you and cares for you and how you interact with um, the customer. I do think it's super interesting, Ben, because I've, there's a lot of people who I think underestimate the impact of small changes at scale. And, you know, you, someone might say, but Ben, is that really going to make a difference? Well, I would say, you know, you've got 300 people on an airplane, give or take 250. Uh, even if there's sort of two or three people mm. who hear that message and go, okay, I, I guess maybe, you know, they are under pressure. Um, and, and it just reduces the number of times that it escalates further. You know, you see some of the, the footage on, on whatever platform you, you follow of especially in the US where it is ultra heightened and uh, people are regularly being thrown off planes, it seems. Um, that's just not a pleasant uh, environment mm. for everyone. And I think it's this idea of, um, you know, priming. So even if you look at one of the, the studies that I read in the past around thinking around being more inclusive uh, in, for example, talent conversations and just calling out the, the concern or the bias that you, you think may be a play, brings it to the front of people's consciousness and makes them more aware. So there's some solid evidence to show that if you follow these techniques, they can be very impactful. But with many, many things in life, there's the what and the how. And I would suggest that, you know, mm -hmm. it needs to be aligned to the, to the, to the situation. Uh, but also probably, you know, for the branding geeks out there like me, think about your own personal brand or the brand of the organization, have some fun with it, you know, make it something which is also not necessarily overly serious, uh, if, if that's appropriate, because I think people also respond well to something which is um, not necessarily being um, parental in nature, but it's more of a call out and a, hey, you know, we're all in the situation together. Let's, um, you know, act in a way which is really uh, making the best as possible for everyone. So that positive messaging, I think it also have a really, a really um, improved impact on, on what the situation is. 
Yeah, I think that's really disarming too. Um, when we were when we were speaking earlier, you gave a really great example of how you know priming could be used, where the focus wasn't necessarily on "do not treat us mm. this way" and "please be respectful." So it wasn't wasn't kind of um, what's the word? Is it punitive? The word I'm looking for? It w- it was more about a, a reminder that you know we are here for you. We want to help you. We know you're upset and stressed, and we're going to do our very best. And if you're feeling like you need a break from the conversation at any point, let yeah. us know because we really want to help you achieve the best possible outcome. And when you said that, I thought I would – I'm someone who's very bad-tempered. I hate to admit <laughs> this, but most most people know this about me. <laughs> but something like that to me is just really disarming and makes you go, oh, my God, of course. There's other people. They are trying to help. You know, who knows what the person on the other line is going yeah. through too and there's just no benefit from from being mm-hmm. um, overly emotional or aggressive. Exactly. And again, you know, there's going to be a spectrum of, of emotions and, you know, you take the average person answering uh, calls, uh, you know, in, in that kind of role. Um, there's a lot of calls, but let's say hypothetically they did, you know, 20 calls a day. I know that's grossly underestimating it, I'm sure. But of those 20 calls, you know, if you kind of think, well, there's going to be some people who are going to be calm and they're just amazing no matter what, there's going to be some on the other end of the spectrum who are going to be pretty much probably no matter what you say, there's so much going on for them that they're just going to be upset no matter what. But it's that large group in the middle where you'd have to be able to say, if they just feel safe enough to go, actually, I've got another option here. It doesn't have to be combative. And, and maybe I just need a break. This conversation's not going well. Um, and there's different techniques I'm sure you can use, but I, I do think that giving people uh, the opportunity to not feel like they're in that fight or flight kind of situation can certainly reduce stress levels and help people, you know, re-engage that frontal cortex. Ben, you're the expert on this. I'm not going to try and <laughs> act like I know more than you, but <laughs> that ability to just shift into cognitive, more conscious thought um, and actually ha- feel a little bit more in control of the situation is certainly going to help some people. And again, you scale that, you know, got a call center of a thousand people, that's 20,000 calls a day, how many days a year, you know, this is going to have a, a big positive impact. And I think it's this idea of making small positive changes over time can have a, a really amazing um, benefit to all. Yes. What about the, what about that person who just can't deal that morning? Someone who might've taken three really difficult calls, but they have a target. They have to hit, I don't know, 10 calls. I'm spitballing mm-hmm. here, Pierre. I've never worked in insurance, but in that in that case, what kind of an environment does that person need to be in to be able to go? Oh, I just I need a break from this. Is that something that happens often, or do people just power through the day because they have to? Well, again, you know these things are, are and I've been. Uh, had a very eloquent answer earlier. There's an organizational design piece. So the job design and the role of the the ability to say, if it's a high pressure job, let's say you're calling where, you know, it might've been um, uh, maybe in an environment where someone's being potentially injured very seriously or, or potentially died at work. So, you know, you've got to have a way, number one, of making sure that, that that level of call goes to the highest skilled person in the team. You wouldn't have somebody who's just started day one, they need a mechanism that's built into the role design where they can say, hey, this is a really difficult situation. I've got a, a team member who's an expert in this. I'm going to just get them involved. Mm-hmm. So those kind of design aspects need to be there as well. You, you cannot just expect every person mm-hmm. on the phone to have the experience and the nous to to 
resolve all these situations. Um, so that's what what you need from that point of view. And you mm. need to be able to have debrief sessions. And, and these things are, are designed into jobs, especially where there's a very high level of psychosocial risk attached. However, there's an additional piece around uplifting everyone. So giving people the the skills and tools and capability to also get better at identifying, is this a situation I can maybe help this customer with or I can resolve myself um, and, and making that decision early enough in the call where they're not trying to deal with that situation. So those are some of the design aspects. And then I think to your point uh, that you were asking about is, well, how does the person know that it's a psychologically safe work environment? Is my manager going to get angry with me when I say, I'm struggling today, I need a break, um, it's unscheduled, but I'm not coping? You know, are they going to pressurize me to, to hit a number, yeah. a performance target? Or do I know that actually there's, this is an environment where if I have a bad day or two, that's not going to mean that, my, you know, my career's over and I'm not going to escalate the the concern and the stress within my own head unnecessarily. Hmm. Psychological safety, once again, raised as a very, very important topic yeah. at the moment. And I would say, you know, it's interesting because I think Ben made the comment earlier about is this woke correctness training and, oh, my God, you know, I can imagine some people on the call going, come on, Pierre, like I've got a business to run here. Like seriously, <laughs> what's going on? And I would take a step back and say, yeah. Well, you know, I, I hear you and I think that there are absolutely commercial aspects to this, but, you know, just take a step back and think about long-term performance, not just today, not just this hour, but, but you know, even if, if for you, you're a very numbers commercial person, I'd be saying, well, well, think about the fact that, you know, over time, this, this person's not going to perform at the same level. If, they, if they're starting a day having had a really tough week with no break and no opportunity to really decompress or debrief and find new tools and techniques, I guarantee you that their performance will diminish over time. And now you're going to have challenges like your quality assurance team are going to say, this person's being rude to customers all day. And 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 think about all the, mm. the, the, the difficulty in, in replacing an individual recruitment costs a lot of money these days, paying the next person more money. So even if that's how your brain works and you're looking for the commercial aspect of it, I would suggest that there's a lot of improved performance and uh, commercial success that can be achieved from making some smart decisions along the way, giving people the appropriate design breaks and support along the way. And um, that's going to result in, in over time, um, I think significantly increased performance, and that's not even taking into account loyalty, discretionary effort, and you know those, those things that actually we all know is the is the magic golden you know um, dust that you sprinkle over a team that performs at a high level. So I, I really think that there's a number of ways you can um, think about it, but ultimately, you know, for me, it, it kind of comes back to performance of the individual, the team, and the organisation. Yeah, what you're running. Um your own business now. Mm. You're in a life post Elions. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing. Yeah. So I'm working with clients uh, to really, you know, support them with uplifting some of the strategic aspects of HR that they're working on or key transformation projects um, and with a real focus on leader, individual leader or, or team um, effectiveness work, as well as uh, some executive coaching thrown in for good measure. And, uh, you know, I'm currently working with uh, a, a multinational insurance company uh, that, that um, you know, sell life insurance. And so it's really interesting to see, I was um, literally on Monday, came back from a trip to the UK and uh, the Canada where 
you know, I was able to go out and, and get to know the teams that are working there and looking at ways of, of helping them improve their effectiveness, uh, you know, employee retention, all the classic things that everyone worries about in Australia and elsewhere. Yeah. And what was really interesting to me is wherever you go in these locations around the world, there is this consistent challenge around finding the right talent. Um, I think everyone's under this pressure, even though there's other economic challenges, there's still a, a lack of, of great talent out there. But also this idea of supporting people to perform in a really consistent way and to uplift that business performance. When you talk to team leaders and and more senior leaders, they're genuinely concerned about the ability to retain staff and to to get them to mm. adapt to this ever changing world that we live in. And so it's been really interesting to work with you know some 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 other clients. But um, I think these are challenges which which feel fairly universal in in multiple industries and in multiple geographies. Yeah, I think with the labour shortage at the moment as well, it's every client I have, everyone that I speak to, this is the number one concern for them. So it's, if there's any good to come of it, I think it's that people realize how important their culture is and how important it is to treat people well. Yeah. And, and Ben, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this in clients that you've worked with, but yeah, absolutely. for me, what's also super interesting and it, it comes back to, I think uh, this is probably could be another whole podcast is the whole return to office conversation. And I must say, yeah. I've enjoyed the memes of, of the Zoom CEO demanding every employee comes back to the office to be productive. And I, and I thought the irony is just quite breathtaking, but it's again, coming back to that understanding of well, you know, what is it that 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 works for me versus others? And again, thinking about that overall performance um, and getting the best out of people. There's so many different pressures that we have and this idea of, of culture, you know, what has a positive impact on that and what are you looking to build and why? And, and again, I think having, you know, thinking about the aspects of your culture, which are around um, helping people feel included, like they belong, um, pretty hard to achieve without an understanding of, of this emotional intelligence as a framework and as a, as a construct. I, I, I think you would, you would struggle to be successful without um, including this as part of what you're thinking about. So I don't know what your thoughts are, Ben. Well, I might be a bit biased, but uh, I would agree wholeheartedly with you. In fact, it gives me an opportunity to plug our previous podcast as well. We were talking about the rise of AI <laughs> and how that's creating emotions for <laughs> employees and the need for managers really to be skilled not only at, um, again, managing emotions around that, but uh, really thinking intelligently about how to purposefully integrate AI into their organisational cultures. Pierre, wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming and, and being a part of this with uh, Marie and I. It's been, been great. Yeah, always a pleasure, always a great conversation. And um Thank you, Pierre. You know, looking forward to to listening into the next podcast. They've they've all been so interesting thus far and um uh, appreciate the opportunity to come and uh, share some of my thoughts and experiences. Uh great to chat. Pleasure's all ours. Thank you. Talk soon. Cheers. Bye.